Hey there, I'm Jennifer Thompson, and today we have a special treat for you. I will be doing an interview for Warwick's of La Jolla. Warwick's is one of the oldest bookstores in the nation, and it is fantastic. If you have a chance to go visit, I recommend it. In fact, buy all of their books. Every book they have is good, including this one. All right, let's listen. Um, on behalf of Warwick's, welcome. And Tom Rob Smith, welcome. I'm so excited to meet you. Um, I've been a fan since Child 44. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> I was, as I was reading about that, uh, I read that book on vacation on a beach. Not exactly a beach read. Just kind of you know, Beach is a great for reading. I've read all kinds of books on beaches. Beaches are amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a one type of read for a beach. That's true. That's true. But this was one of those was just like, oh God, I love that book. So, anyways, I love all your books, but that one just is like in my brain is just like, oh, so this is this is this is when Julie from Warwick's, the director of events here, gets to fangirl a little bit. So just say it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very uh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so hosting me. This is a real honor to be with you. Oh, Thank well, you. we are very happy that you're here with us. So, as you, I mean, just for those of you that are joining us that might not know, Warwick's, we are located in La Jolla, San Diego, California. Been in business since 1896. Have hosted lots of authors. So, um, so it's a pleasure to have you with us, Tom. Um, I think I've been in the store, by the way. Have you? Yeah, because when I went to I went to La Jolla to research um, the Versace story. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I was in there. Yeah. So I know La Jolla. It's stunning. A really beautiful place. Amazing. It's not too shabby. Definitely. <laughs> so um, if you are in the San Diego area, uh, we'd love for you to stop by and pick up Tom's book. If you're not, I'm going to be talking with you in the comment section of Facebook and the chat section of the webinar and put the link in on how you can order it and have that book shipped to you. Um, in the comment section of Facebook, and sorry, I had a hair going crazy. In the comment section of Facebook and in the chat of, um, and in the webinar, you're going to be able to ask some questions. Jennifer and Tom are going to talk for about 30, 35-ish minutes, and then we'll bring in some questions from the audience. We always love the audience questions. So if you're on the webinar, down at the bottom, there's a Q&A button. Go ahead and, and click on that, and you can put your questions there. And if you're watching this on Facebook with us, Go ahead and put them in the comment section and I'll feed those in. And if you're watching this later on YouTube, sorry, we're not live, but it's going to be a great conversation. So with that, let me introduce you. And Jennifer, you know what? I was hoping that I had your correct um, bio. So please forgive me if wing it's it. the wrong one. No, <laughs> I was just going to say, just wing it. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer has been doing these events with us for so long. She's just such a wonderful partner of Warwick's and we oh. adore everything she does. So thank you again, Jennifer, for doing this with us. So Jennifer Thompson is a personal branding expert, digital marketing strategist, and publishing consultant. She is an author and speaker who delivers strategy-rich content and actionable tools that educate and empower authors. She co-founded Monkey See Media in 2004, an award-winning cover, book cover and website design house. She is also a co-host of the Premise Podcast, which this will be on later. So that was always one fun to make sure that we get this on the podcast too. Co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival and serves on the board of the San Diego Memoir Writers Association. With that, you two have a great conversation in about a half hour or so. All right. Thank you, Julie. Welcome, Tom. How are you? 
I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. What time is it there? It is 7 p.m. in New York. Okay. You're in New York. I didn't know where you were. I should have asked that question first, but I see the the city lights outside your yeah, window. That's not, a, <laughs> that's not a poster. That's, that's real. <laughs> yeah. But it's not like, uh, yeah, the night, the night show. So Tom Rob Smith is an award-winning novelist and screenwriter, creator of the international best-selling Child 44 trilogy, voted one of the top 100 thrillers of all time, the TV shows he's written have won Emmys and Golden Globes. He loves stories in all their forms and encourages readers and aspiring writers to reach out on social media. And we'll ask you to give us your social media handles at the end as well and invite people. So thank you for being here. This is an honor. Thank you for having me. So I would like you to tell our listeners what this book is about. So give us a little... A little summary of the book. Yeah. Um, Cold People starts with the largest mass migration of the human population ever. And that kind of the origins for that was I was always really interested in the historical uh, examples of people being forced to move from their home. And I was mm. looking to do that story, but rather than digging into it as a piece of historical fiction, trying to make everyone part of that migration everyone forced to leave their home at the same time. And often what happened in those examples, and you can think of examples from pretty much every continent. Um, and with, with this is that you're given the worst piece of land, and obviously the worst piece of land or the most inhospitable piece of land on this planet is Antarctica. So it's like suddenly that's all we've got. The whole world, all of the societies, structures, possessions, all suddenly mean nothing. You've got 30 days to get to this piece of land, this, in a sense, this reservation, this human reservation, and the superior life forms given this order. And that's the, the starting, the sort of starting premise. And then this migration, this mass panic 30 day migration happens. They arrive in Antarctica, obviously you know, enormous losses along the way. And then once they arrive in Antarctica, the question is how do you survive on the most inhospitable land on the planet? And obviously we think that's, you know, that that should be achievable because people live there now, but the way in which people live there now is during the summer, enormous amounts of resources are shipped down. So it's a restock yeah. as it is right now on the basis, but that is gone. There's no restocking. There's no going back to, you know, whichever part of the world you want something from. It's all you have is all you can bring with you and all it is there. And that's the story. It's like how, human ingenuity can survive in those kind of, you know, almost impossible conditions. Right. One of my favorite parts of reading the book is when you're recreating, you know, the things that make humanity great and the culture that we, you know, we hold dear. So food, the type of food we eat, the bars, like all of the presidents, the most important people that were on the planet now run restaurants or, you know, um, are musicians and, you know, they're just enjoying life. Like they're no longer the people in charge because the power they held doesn't really matter anymore in this climate. And I just want to talk to you about how much fun you had creating the names of the food, the, 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 the beer that you created and, you know, fermented, did you do any research or like, how did you come to those pieces of the story? Well, there are two bits of that. First of all, I'm really pleased that you said 
that there's a kind of celebration of human ingenuity in this book. In many ways, you know, it can easily be, and books and almost stories are kind of put under different titles and dystopia is thrown around. But actually, there's a real sense of joy in how you can overcome the odds and how you see that this is the challenge and you rise to it on lots of different levels. And as you say, there was thinking about food production, how mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you have... And music. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I interrupted you. But in music, you brought music and you brought all the things that make us good as humans, I think. Well, I think that's, you know, there's the there's the kind of practical level that is also very fun. Like I really enjoyed looking at all the different foods and trying to reinvent diet. And, and then there was the side of, well, it's not just a, what is surviving. Surviving isn't just about warmth on a you know, on a on a physical level, keeping warm. It's about warmth emotionally. And as you say, all of the things that are sometimes dismissed as secondary, like, you know, culture, music, these things are seen as an indulgence. Actually, you realize how integral they are to the act of survival and that survival has to be more than just a calorie count and body warmth. And so that, you know, surfaces again. And that and that is sort of at the heart of what the book is about, what it means to survive and what we survive for and who we survive for. So did you always know you were going to write science fiction? Because you're known for writing thrillers, right? Uh, you know what? I, I mean, I, when I look at the trajectory of my you know, writing career, there are a series of like, it's, it's like me hitting different stories at different times, almost at random, that I had no mm-hmm. control over which stories really caught my spirit. Like with Child 44, I was researching a project for a, a, a TV company. No, it was a small film company in the London and it involved researching serial killers. I hadn't been, I had read, you know, I've read Silence of the Lambs. I'd read the really famous thrillers, but I wasn't, like I didn't read a lot of nonfiction true crime. And so for this, mm-hmm. I said, okay, I need to go and buy all the, you know, the true accounts of all the different, I need to understand, I need to understand the psychology of serial killers a little bit. And that's when I literally stumbled across the Chikatilo case and thought this is a really extraordinary case. I'm really interested in in this idea of justice, and so that's how that came about. Um, the the set that the, that trilogy followed. The the book after that, the farm, was based on uh, experience that happened to my family. My mother had a psychosis and believed that there was this conspiracy against her, and I had to decide whether it was real or not. So that was that story. Um, I was sent the Cunanan book by um, the, the Ryan Murphy's team. I didn't really know much about Andrew Cunanan. I knew that he'd killed Versace, but I didn't know he'd killed all the people before. And mm. that whole piece of history was unknown to me. So, you know, and, and it feels to me like I'm moving through and I don't know which stories I'm going to bump into or what's going to happen to me personally. I wrote a story called Mother, Father, Son for the BBC, which Richard Gere was in which was really drawing on the fact that a close friend of mine had a stroke and he was mm. my age. So very mm. early and he had to learn how to speak again, how to walk again. And it was this extraordinarily emotional experience, but I became really interested in adult being put in that position where you're using those kids, you know, bricks again to learn the letters and what it was like to do that at the age of, you know, 35 rather than five. And so I don't mm. know what stories I'm going to write. And then this one, I've always loved science fiction. Growing up, I loved the movies of Zemeckis and Spielberg. And I just thought, you know, these those kind of movies now almost impossible to make. They're so expensive. 
But with right. a book, you can do whatever you want. You know, there's no budget. <laughs> the imagination is free to go wherever it wants to spend as as much as it wants. And it felt really like I should I should write the story that I would have loved to have written as you know that was part of my love of storytelling as a as a as a as a child and growing up. And so that was part of the energy. And then it seemed to match with lockdown and. You know, the desire during lockdown to read a certain type of book that, you know, and we were speaking earlier about how there are all different kinds of books you can read on a beach, but that sense of escapism, books that take you to somewhere else and you can forget all about your troubles, all about the world that you're in right now, and just disappear into this, this, this new world and kind of get lost in it. And that was that. As was you, yeah, as you were writing this book, um, I'm just wondering, like, so there's, I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, the humans are trying to figure out how are we going to survive? Like, we have to evolve faster than we're capable of evolving. So we have to do something about that. So now scientists are like, okay, let's do this. And that's a big piece of the book. Was that originally part of the plan as you were writing or did that come about? Was that kind of organic? Because there's so many layers to this book. And I'm really curious about how those ideas came about? And also, did you find yourself having to stop and just do research? Like, tell us about the process of the journey of writing this book. Yeah, it's interesting that you've um, you honed in on that because that's actually exactly what happened, which is it started with the premise that I outlined. And then when we got to, uh, the story got to Antarctica and I was looking at building the society, it just looked like you needed some, you know, just a practice. Because when what you try and do is immerse yourself in the difficulties, and once you're in those difficulties, it seemed like humanity was on a path of decline. Like it's very hard to really see how, because we're so ill-equipped for the cold. Our skin is so mm. bad dealing with the cold. Our calorie needs are so enormous. Antarctica is so hostile to us, and mm. and you know, genetic adaptation uh, evolution is just too slow. It's too slow to 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 out to be out kind of outpace our extinction. So it felt like we were gonna we were really in an impossible situation, and we were gonna have to do something we'd never done before. And I don't think it's a spoiler. I think I can just say that genetic um, genetic adaptation is part of the story. Genetic engineering is part of the story. And what's interesting is you're taking something you can call it science fiction, speculative fiction, but a technology that exists right now that we're not yeah. using because of ethical reasons it's not that it's 200 years in the future and i'm kind of imagining that we might get that we have it right now we've just decided not to do it or at least we think most people have decided not to do it possible that, that it's being done elsewhere but you know so this is a situation where suddenly you're like well actually those ethical considerations are removed for two reasons first of all you know we're looking at extinction second of all we now know there are other life there's other forms of life in the, the, the universe. And therefore, do we think our own DNA is as special as I think we think it is right now? I think right now we have this real sense that it's untouchable and that somehow because we're the, we're the dominant species on this planet, that why would we tinker with it? I mean, we're tinkering with other animals, but we don't tinker with our own. And so at yeah. this point, like, well, we have no choice. It's almost like a, there's no choice. You know, we need to be better at dealing with the cold. But I think, you know, that did evolve out of looking at how impossible it was to survive down there. And that's what I kind of liked about the premise is it put you in a situation where you were in the corner and you had to figure out your way out. 
Right, right. I can see that. And I felt like I was on that journey with you completely. It felt incredibly organic. But I have a question taking us us out of that side of it. Are you a romantic? Um, Well, let me... me... It's not my job, but just as a way of answering, I would ask, does it seem like that from the right? Absolutely. Yeah. I got so much of you. I'm like, oh, this guy is such a romantic and you love humanity and you love, I think, exploring the relationships, like, for example, between Otto and Lisa, this is our first couple who like, they see each other from a distance. They come from totally different worlds and yet they know there's, there's something here, something's clicking. And then the Roman, the romance of that was so beautiful. So I wanted to hear more from you about, you know, your vision. What is, what is romance to you? And are you a romantic? I mean, I'm really glad that you asked the question because it's easy to jump into the big part of the, 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 the concepts behind this book. But actually there was one thing that was really interesting to me, which was this love story at the beginning between these Mm -hmm. two, who actually yeah. one is in the states one lives in portugal one is going to be a you know a doctor and is on a career path that is going in a certain way and he's working as a, a tour guide in lisbon and and yet they meet each other and they have this incredible chemistry and he's metal mm-hmm. and he just knows that she's the one and yeah. the sense that there's this whole world between them that you know they're never going to get together and the truth is in reality they wouldn't have got They together. wouldn't have. Yeah. Split apart. She would have gone home. It, yeah. You know, I'd have written a few cards to each other, maybe. Oh, <laughs> I'm so old. A few emails, whatever. <laughs> I like the cards. No. They would have sent TikTok videos to each other. I don't know what they do. Anyway, they, they would have said they would have tried to keep it alive. And then obviously you would the, the pull of it would have kept them apart. And then this, you know, once this happens, this this 30-day deadline is given, all of those gaps between them melt away. The social gaps, the economic gaps, all of the cultural stuff is just irrelevant and now they just have each other and they just got to get to safety and there's there's this sense that this love story that would never have happened in regular world is now given a chance by this and so that was kind of at the heart of that beginning and that, you know interestingly though on the subject of research lots of things you research you research genetic engineering you research antarctica but one of the things i also researched was laboratory site i was like looked in and this is a, oh. it's not an easy thing to research because it doesn't yeah on it but you go in and you try and find people online who talk about that feeling of meeting someone and knowing in that first instant that they're the person and the example in the book the story that is told which is about the person who um kept all the ticket stubs from their dates yes so someone yes. who went on a date with um this woman a guy went on this date with this woman i think it was in the states and he kept those ticket stubs from every single day. And when he proposed to her, he presented her with all the ticket stubs as though he knew from the beginning, that first ticket stub, that she was the one. And um, it's easy to laugh at those kind of stories and easy to mock them. You think, well, maybe he did that with everyone. And, you know, he, you know, once she marries him, she then finds there's like 10 in the, in the back cupboard or something. But like, um, I just think there's <laughs> <thing about laughs> the failed ones. But like, I just think... And I, <laughs> 
at there's a, the Hopper exhibition at the at the um, Whitney right now, which I saw a couple of weeks ago. And he he was married to. They were an amazing team, him and his wife, and they kept all their ticket stuffs, and they were all laid out in the exhibition from all the Broadway. Mm-hmm. Show. Reminded me of that that moment. But um, yes, yeah, I so love I, that. Yeah. My husband and I have a similar story. Oh, I knew I the minute know. I saw him, I absolutely knew. And ten oh. days later, we were. That was it. That's amazing. Yeah. What was? Uh, yeah. I don't want to. But I'm just yeah. so Interesting. What was? What was the? It was such an incredible. It's quite. It's rare. just a feeling. You're like, hmm. Yeah, I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. It's a ridiculous concept, you know, but I think it does happen. That's and true. you could say that, you know, well, it's a coincidence. <laughs> it just happened to work out. But I I love that in your book, you do have the people who are naysayers, like, well, as you say, you know, he did that for every relationship and that one just happened to work out. But the beauty, I think the innocence of the romance in the book is what I thought was so wonderful. Um, you know, here we're reading science fiction. We're reading about potentially the end of the planet. Uh, you know, we are in a situation, humanity is in a situation that's untenable. And yet we're taking the time to concentrate on a love story that's really beautiful. They become the heartbeat of the book. Really, I think the the soul of the book in the beginning and the the reason to keep reading for me, I don't read a lot of science fiction. So it, it's not really a science fiction book. It's that, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, one of the things about, um, I think, story structures when it comes to the really kind of big scale, the big scale events is that often you go into people like presidents and prime ministers and and actually what happens is we all kind of know what they're going to do and say because they kind of have to do and say the same thing which is you have to sort of work down the hierarchy you know unless they've gone crazy sure. they do the you know thing that they do the official thing and actually i think one of the one of the movies i really loved was the the, the new take on war of the worlds um, the mm. Steve Jobo, Tom Cruise one, which is just about this family. And mm. like, it's not about the, and you don't really see, I don't think you see presidents at all. You just him with his kids. And to me, mm. I have completely compelling in a way because I just did, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. It was all about their, their dynamic thrown into this impossible situation. And I think there's something of that here, which is it's about, you know, you know, people caught up in this enormous situation and how it would alter love stories, how it would alter family dynamics, and those things following through. So that yeah. makes me think of scale and intimacy is really important for um, for the story. But on the subject of you know science fiction is you know a broad canvas. I, I I know exactly what you mean. I think, um, but I don't. I never went into it thinking it has to be one thing. But it's so mm-hmm. so many people say to me, oh, I you know I don't read it or I expect it to be something like this or so I'm always I'm always interested in the expectations around conventions and genres. And I, I'm sure that's Absolutely. to go back to your other question, why did I do it? I'm sure that's part of it. <laughs> to bring something to this genre that felt maybe slightly different. Sometimes when I was reading this book, I got the sense that you were almost slapping us on the hand. Like we're not good stewards of this planet. And if we don't knock it off something bad's going to happen, right? And so this is sort of the answer to, you know, the aliens have come down and said, you're doing a terrible job. So now go to Antarctica and see if you can make it. We'll allow you to live there. Did did that ever cross your mind? Like the, just the environmentalism piece of it? 
Well, they never say that. They never say anything. They, they never. It, but the thing about it, once you and once that happens, you and in, you infer that you've done something mm-hmm. wrong. But actually, mm-hmm. they on their own mind, you know, so the whole of Europe for something. Maybe they were just after. Maybe they did it almost arbitrarily. It's never quite explained. But in your head, and this is a, this is what's interesting. I think for people is you think that, that you're culpable in some way, and we are. Yeah. Culpable many different ways. So therefore you employ this as a punishment for something. I mean, that's kind of built into our psyche. We always expect, you know, the the things that happen to us are caused by the things that we've done, but actually Mm -hmm. there's a possibility that had absolutely nothing to do with anything. we Nothing to do with it. But as as to the question (laughs) independent of that story, well, I mean, I think the, one of the sad things is just, you know, the biodiversity reduction is really sad. And I think when you're looking at, you know, how wonderful and amazing, um, and our love for it, like we, you know, we love all these, you know, documentaries and we're, there's a kind of weird paradox about, and I felt this actually during the the Avatar, the new Avatar movie in particular, which I thought was absolutely beautiful. And I was in a cinema, it was completely packed and everyone was loving it. And I thought, we clearly love this mm-hmm. wondrous world that was kind of the sea, but we're doing a really bad job of actually looking after the real sea. And they had that real tension in it. And um so yeah, I think there's a strange there's a strange double double edge to things at the moment, and which is we, you know we clearly love these things, and yet you know we are, on some ways, polluting the the ocean and stuff like that. But it, this was never meant about uh, a kind of judgment on that in the sense I never that's why I never gave I never gave um, a justification or a reason, and they never got into a debate mm. about it. They simply were put in this place and and told to fend for themselves. And once you're in that place, you have to behave in it. A different way i suppose the way they reconstruct society down there which is they manage resources and you can't pollute in the same way because so, everything is so limited that you yeah. do you do build a slightly different world um and as you said before in some ways quite a beautiful society i mean there's a bleakness to it because it's under so much pressure but they find ways of supporting each other in a way that perhaps we don't do as well as we could do now well, and we have, you know, certain villages. There's three villages that are on the peninsula. And then there's McCurdo Station. I think I have that right. McMurdo, yeah. And one of them is Hopetown. You know, and the whole idea of Hopetown is that we are, I sort of see them as the hippies of the time. Yeah, what yeah. mattered to them, they thought we're going to survive if we have love, if we have music, if we, you know, embrace the beauty of humanity and and get back to the basics of loving each other and taking care of each other. And I thought that was really a nice reminder, actually. Yeah, I mean, that, so, you know, the basic Antarctica is so inhospitable. There's really just one stretch, that peninsula that comes up that has slightly more temperate conditions comparatively to mm-hmm. the main body. And McMurdo is on the other side, which is uh, the main, um, you know, it's predominantly an American base and it's the most kind of sophisticated base. And that's where all of the technology and all of the government, the, the previous government's cluster. So you have this kind of split between people, you know, you have a very kind of, there's one town which is kind of very faith-driven, another one that feels more kind of about industry and building. And then, as you say, there's kind of a hippie creative, there's that kind of divide <laughs> as important as each other. And McMurdo is about engin- you know, technology, engineering, um, that's where the pioneering aspect comes from. And, and yeah, so they kind of mm-hmm. separate way. But I find each of them very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now I have a, a question. Who is your favorite character in this book? Your favorite to write? Um, well, okay. 
I love all of my characters equally. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> so I love all of them, but I think that the 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 kind of um can I the, guess? Yes. Echo? Echo, I think Echo I love uh, Echo and Yotam are my two. Yotam. They're, they're both outsiders. And I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit like an outsider. And Echo, for people who haven't had a chance to read it yet, is the child of... Um, oh, no, 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 no. Don't give anything away. Oh, no, you don't no. need to tell him. Okay. No. Let's, let's let him read it. Yeah, okay. I'm not really... <laughs> okay. Super. So, yeah, but Echo... <laughs> okay, so Echo and Yotam are both are both outsiders in their different ways. So their energy to me is really interesting. They're trying to figure Very out much. how to be part of something. They're not outsiders in a kind of rebellious streak. They're just, they have right. a sense of feeling different. And so mm-hmm. both are trying to figure out how to be part of this new society in their different ways. And I found writing both of them very um, well- close. And Yodam, I mean, he's going through, even though it's the, you know, seemingly the end of the world and like, you know, be who you're going to be. He's still holding back on the fact that he's gay and not embracing who he really is. And he's, he's still sort of struggling with this inner battle. And that's so human. And I wondered if some of him was you, because we, you know, we do put parts of ourselves into a book and into our characters. And did you experience a that same inner battle that Yodam was experiencing. Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I um, was, it was interesting. I did a, a podcast and they asked me to um, make a decision about in my life, what would I change? Like if I was on my, to go back into my past and a turning point turn. And the thing that I did was to go back and was to come out earlier. Like I came out when I was 22, 23, which isn't mm. that unless you talk to my Swedish relatives who are like, oh, it's so late. But anyway, I think the world has changed. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was kind of, it was, anyway, I guess it was about average or something. But in terms of, you know, anguish and difficulties, coming out at the point at which I went to university college would have been a much better time. It felt mm-hmm. like I had another three or four years of struggling. And so I would, went back and, and found a moment in my life where if I, 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 I should have come out and, and I tried to trace my life forward. And it was a really curious process because it was hard to know what would have happened. But so that's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, that kind of anguish and trying to work out um, coming to terms with yourself is at the heart of Yotam. And certainly I felt a lot of that growing up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting how much of myself is in this book. I think it seems like... Uh, hmm like a big um, epic canvas with a huge concept. But to me, the the Yotam story is one of the most personal that I've written. And um, at the heart mm. of it, Yotam and Echo, I just feel very, you know, as, you, as I said, very close to them. And I feel there's a lot of myself there. You once said in an interview that writing helps you know and understand yourself better. Did anything come out of writing this book that helped you know and understand yourself better. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was strange. It was like, uh, I'm trying to think how to put it. Um, It came at a really pivotal point in my life in many ways. It was like my life uh, was, you know, I was going in a certain direction and maybe there was an element of feeling almost comfortable. And I thought I want to, 
this isn't right. I need to upend it. And so mm. this is about things being upended and trying to reinvent yourself. Mm. And I was going through the, exactly the same process when I was writing it. Wow. Um, so, yeah. so now I've learned how to make, you know, kelp soup. So, you know. <laughs> Do you remember some of the foods that are, you know, we've got kelp soup, we had some fermented alcohols, and I started to think, hmm, I want to try that. <laughs> yeah, they sound pretty good. I think there's, you know, I think my okay. age is like we should bring out an Antarctica cookbook. I mean, all the recipes are super healthy. That's for sure. No, I, would, I would think so. Yeah, there's no not, sugar. <laughs> yeah, very low. There's no sugar. Exactly. Super is keto, keto high. You know, because kelp grows really quickly. So all the stuff I found was really good for you. And I had to sort of look it up. And actually, you know, pretty much you can find the nutritional, um, mm. I've obviously lived in LA, you find the nutritional value of anything, you know, in terms of, and everything I buy, it, I found kelp in Whole Foods the other day. I have some in my fridge right now. I have a lot of kelp in my in my not just my fridge, but in my cupboard that we cook with. Well, we you can see what we would do. We'd be kelp farmers if we were in Antarctica. That's yeah, let's be kelp farmers. I think that sounds like a great idea. At least we wouldn't be useless, <laughs> you know. At least we'd like okay, we're the kelp people. Are you familiar with Noma, the the restaurant and cookbook? You know, I never eaten there. I just heard it was closing though. Is that right? Is that they're gonna just make oh. food? Yeah, I'm not. Right. I think they're just they're shifting to just making food, so they're not going to mm. have to run their restaurant. The, the 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 one in Copenhagen, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's on my bucket list, so that's very bad news for me. Well, I think I think you have like a month to get there, so you have like <laughs> version of cold pizza. I think that you have about if they're going to close, I think in the summer or something. So if it's on your bucket list, did did you try any of the recipes that you put in the book? uh i'm uh i'm vegetarian so i didn't eat any seal i don't even know if you can mm. eat seal i think maybe mm. um i don't um i'm trying to think kelp is the only thing i tried i think which is pretty easy to get mm -hmm. um yeah. stuff well spirulina is a form of algae wow we're yeah. getting hyper healthy now aren't we? and it's pretty i have spirulina but i never i never love the taste but i mix it in with things so I, yeah like i have tried to figure it out like i think um I think I'd struggle a little bit with the meats. I don't think I'd ever be able to do that. I just, and that's not out of some kind of environmental, although it's useful environmentally, but like I just never liked them, like particularly. Well, I never did, like, yeah. Like, Reading the, the, the parts about the blubber for both fire for lanterns and that part, I was like, uh, I think I might draw the line there. <laughs> We're well, getting. Yeah, I don't know. What, it's amazing soap, but yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I want to take it back to your writing career. Um, you mentioned earlier in the green room for those of us who were there that you're dyslexic. And I find it beautiful that you are such a successful, I mean, you're a screenwriter and you've written many novels and yet you're dyslexic. Can you talk to us about the desire to become a writer and working through that disability? I never saw it like that. I mean, I remember I was at school. I mean, I just did a talk at my school. And it's interesting going back there. But I was mm. a history essay or a geography essay marked when I was 12 or 13. And it was covered in red. And the I had really, I was really lucky. I had great teachers. But this, and they were just like, listen, your, your writing is atrocious, but there's great stuff in there. And they would point out that some of the words were written the wrong way. It wasn't just a spelling mistake. It was like I almost struggled with how words could be arranged. And mm. that 
spoke to them as being a form of dyslexia and, and uh, I just had to work really really hard at at the at the at trying to work out the kind of the way in which words worked it didn't come naturally to me at all and actually even as a writer I'm a rewriter really like I really struggle with that first draft I really find it hard to put it down I find each paragraph the shaping of them really really tricky I go over it many many times so you know, I'll finish a chapter, go over it, go over it, and then move on to the next. And then I'll finish a section and go, you know, so there's a real sense of, and some mm. people come back and look at that a phrase and think that means, makes perfect sense to me. And and someone else will read it and just point out that there's this error sitting in it that I haven't identified. And and that's because in your head, you just auto-correct around. You, you just don't, you don't, one of the things I do now is I try to like, I'll print it out or I'll, um, you know, so when when it comes back for the copy editing, you know, you see it as text and that helps with seeing it so my brain doesn't just automatically flow over the words. So the actual writing as a, as a process has always been, has always been challenging. But as I said before, my mom is Swedish and she always used English in a slightly different way because it was a second language for her. And so she would alter phrases, you know, kind of cliched phrases would be turned and inverted slightly. And actually they became much more interesting and much more um, uh, much more provocative in some ways when they were made, made slightly different. And you hear that, like, I mean, if you listen to, hmm. for example, a, I don't know, a German ambassador at the UN, they'll use a word differently. And it catches your ear and, you know, you're like, wow, that's a, I've never heard that word used like that before. <laughs> and so, you know, you become conscious of language in that way. So in some yeah. ways, I think it helped, you know, the difficulty mm. of it actually made me much more engaged with words. And um, I don't see it as a, as I don't see it as a, as a problem in that sense. It was obviously a problem as a kid because I was getting these terrible grades, but like um, I had to, it just, in the end, turned into a real advantage, I think, and a real love for language. Well, you, clearly you must be just a story. The storytelling part of you is much stronger because a lot of kids would get discouraged and think this is too hard, but it doesn't sound like you ever felt that way. You just either just forged ahead like I'm doing this anyway and I don't care, or you liked the challenge to I overcome and conquer that. Right, to, to identify the story because I did struggle with languages because mm -hmm. they were they were separated from story. And now mm. I'm actually learning languages. I'm picking up my Swedish much more. And uh, whenever I speak to my mom on the phone, I speak to her in Swedish and she, as much as possible to try and get it going. And I realized that my, the problem I had at school was A, I just found mistakes humiliating. So I just found them really excruciating. I had, you know, <laughs> that time. But also I think that because it's separated from actually speaking and actually using it, or at least because you, you're trying to learn it in terms of verb tables, I wasn't putting it together in a way that excited me. And, mm. you know, now, for example, I'm learning Spanish and I'll message my Spanish friends. And that is really fun because it's like a message. You're trying to communicate something. You're not trying to just learn a list of vocabulary. And that to me is has helped a lot in making it make sense. So in some ways you're right. I think the reason I wasn't discouraged is I was always thinking, well, I've got this story I want to tell and I have yeah. to get down. I have to, you know, fix this, these words. So you're right. I think that was the engine behind not being discouraged. And as I said before, I was very lucky. I had great teachers and and no one ever said you're you're an idiot. Don't bother. Yeah, that makes such a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You know, and for people out there who want to be storytellers who might be dyslexic, this is a very awesome, encouraging story. 
you know, if you are a storyteller, you can do it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, it is really challenging. I don't want to belittle it. And, you know, there are, I'm sure there are people with far worse um, difficulties with dyslexia that didn't have the resources and the teachers. So it is really challenging for sure. But I agree, like mm -hmm. there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't stop you doing um, mm -hmm. as a storyteller or whatever that whatever your desire is. I'm a believer that if you want something bad enough, you you can accomplish that. It might not be easy, but don't give up. Definitely don't give up. And I hope you can accomplish it. I really do. Mm -hmm. I do believe that. I do think I do think there are. And, you know, you sometimes meet them. There are people out there who are, have faced such enormous difficulties and you can see that the path was kind of there, but it was was not made easy for them. So hmm. I have one more question. Julie's in the in the room. Welcome back, Julie. Hi. How is your mom? How is she doing? She's doing great, actually. She made an amazing recovery. She's a real Good. inspiration to me and to other um to other women in London who she's spoken to, she made a really a fantastic recovery. Um, and uh, yeah, she's a hero of mine. So um, yeah, I was good. Uh, yeah, it was an incredible experience. Very difficult at the time, but inspirational. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to reading the farm because I know that that was based on you know real a real life quandary that you were in so I look forward to reading that and yeah. um thank you so much it's been such a pleasure just getting to ask you questions and I I really appreciate just your your writing and your openness and your humor and your romantic side so thank you for this book well thank you it was a really wonderful conversation thank you for sharing the story I'm glad that my my true love research continues I feel, <laughs> I feel vindicated and writing. But you sound like such, you sound like so goofy when you, it's a really hard thing to write. Like you just put the word, there are two things. Writing the word alien is really hard because as soon as you write it, everyone <laughs> is going to think you're an idiot. But the second of all is like writing first, you know, anything about love at first sight, you just think people think it's unreal. It's like, it's you, and you know, you've gone out there and you're like, I know people have experienced this. How do I put it down on the page and, and for it not to sound unreal? But yes. Hmm. Well, well done. I say well done. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we do have some questions. And if anybody else has any questions, don't forget that the Q&A button's at the bottom of the screen. And, um, you know, Jennifer, to your point of um, not reading science, every book, it seems like the, the good ones, always have the human element in them, whether they're science fiction, whatever. And there's always this human story that brings them into where everybody can read them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Reed has a question. That's it. So hello, Reed. I enjoyed the short stories at the beginning of Cold People. Were you tempted mm -hmm. to spend more time with or expand any of those particular stories? Well, they are um, for people that that uh, knew or not aware of what's is being referenced. The the book begins with these vignettes about Antarctica, and this isn't a spoiler in any way. But one of the reasons I did that is because I was trying to ground 
both the history of Antarctica, which I think is really interesting, but that Antarctica itself was science fiction for so long. People didn't know what it was. They didn't know what was there. It was this impossible place. And now, of course, we know it. We've mapped it. There's still so much we don't know. So it feels very familiar to us. But for thousands of years, it was mythology. It was like, what, what could possibly be down there? And so I find that, you know, it was like taking the line. We always, science fiction seems like it's a line. Um, and actually what it is, it's constantly moving. Um, so as soon as aliens do arrive, suddenly that will just be matter of fact. Uh, anyone will be, a journalist will be typing it in the New York Times. Uh, you know, it, it'll change. That line will be in constant flux. And so, um, and I wanted a little bit of that. And I wanted some of that sense of um, the wonder of Antarctica. Um, could it have been more? I think there's something about them as vignettes that meant I didn't want the, the readers to get too caught up. I mean, it's interesting at the beginning of a book, people are looking for signals. And if those vignettes go on for too long, you start thinking this is your point of view that you're going to follow. So they had to mm. come quite short. And actually the one interesting, the question um, does touch on the fact that Doug, which is the third vignette, which is the closest, he's 1980s at McMurdo Station. He was really intriguing to me, partly because he's quite close to us in terms of uh, our experience. And I could have imagined writing his story in Antarctica for longer, for sure. Um, and he he's mentioned later in the book. That's right. So he does get, because I got so into him and because I imagined connecting the fact that his diaries were so interesting and putting them into the, the later part of the book. So, yeah, exactly. I did get quite caught up in him as a character. I like that. All right, here's another question. How do you decide when you'll telescope in and out of certain bits of the story? For instance, did you ever consider spending more time with the characters as they were migrating? Oh, I did. Actually, this is a really good question. And particularly with this story, because this story is so big, you could slice it many, many different ways. And actually it was. There was one point I remember emailing my agent saying it's going to be 200,000 words because there's so much in it. And actually, the first bit of the migration story, they were all told together. So I had, I think, um, I think I had a 10 big migration stories. And this comes to the fact, again, when you're looking at them, and they, I found them all, because they're so interesting, you tell them from all different parts of the, the world. And actually, now what's happened is they're, they're kind of interspersed through the book, is that it became, it was too long to get to the heart of the story. It felt like a book about migration stories suddenly so there's that moment where you you're as a as someone creates them are completely caught up in them and you find them really interesting and then when you stop it as i said i stop it and then obviously continue read through you think now the book is you're signaling and if the first hundred pages are all migration stories and multiple you don't have a point of view you still haven't got to the location it's not that it's wrong it's just the signals are different and but that's a that's a debate i think a different writer would have would have would have taken a different approach and would have you know, there's, there are any number of possibilities for there, that. And it, it was a real process um, of discovery. Like I didn't set into this book with a clear sense that one way would be right or the other. You start feeling it as you get more material. And then you think, okay, there's too many stories here. Let's introduce that story when we introduce that character. You get your migration story when you introduce the character. It's almost like a kind of vignette that gets attached to the, the character, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that because the the migration and what that means just on a global standpoint can be a whole book in itself. 
Yeah, but what it's interesting, I, mean, I hadn't, you know, thought about it like this, but it's like, you know, when you're introducing almost any character, it almost becomes like, oh, what's your migration story? You know, how did you get to Antarctica? Because everyone got there somehow. Everyone had to do something. Everyone had to use enormous guile or tenacity and or they were given some act of compassion. So it's, everyone has a different story. That was what was so interesting. And they're all connected and they all have this this thing that they can share that they're either some might be ashamed of it because they took a space that someone else could have taken or they mm. they squeezed in or they had you know privilege in the sense that they had access to a plane when someone else didn't but yeah so it became like a kind of everyone has this story that they tell yeah I, I have to say i really loved that part of it because it added tension and i looked forward to finding out their migration story and i knew it was going to happen and so it really kept me engaged and i enjoyed going back for each one i thought that was really well done yeah. all right um last one from reed so charlotte rampling's character in london spy is still one of their favorite favorites that you've written what was the inspiration for her character? Wow. Um, Charlotte, Ram yeah, and first of all, Charlotte Rampling is just extraordinary. Um, I was so happy when she took the role. We met her in a, in a, in a, in a cafe or a restaurant in London. And I was, you know, you always meet people and you, you sing their praises and you're not sure what they're going to do. And um, yeah, she really responded to the material. And I don't know what her inspiration was now that I'm thinking about it. I think it was the fact, I like the fact that she had such, she had a very different way of loving her son. That's what I think. It was like she was going to love her son, but it, she, her son was going to be extraordinary no matter what. And now I mean, my brain is drawing connections to cold people. But there is this sense that, you know, she's like, this son is going to be extraordinary. And I'm going to put this, this, my love is, you know, it's real. She actually loved her son and it wasn't, I can't, it wasn't a, an act, it, there, was, there were acts of cruelty in it, but it was this act of, you know, in order to be great, you have, to, this is the way to, this is the only way to be great. And so someone who is so clear headed about the world, which is very hard to do, like, that's not how most of us would see it. We're, we're, we're kind of a mix, but she's like, well, and you, you hear stories about people, you know, people who, I don't know, have uh, amazing concert violinists at the age of 11, it just requires a certain discipline that is uh, or certain focus that comes in very early and so she applied that and I was just curious of her relationship with her so she came out of lots of things but you know Charlotte as an actor brought so much to that herself um, as all great actors do so it was a lot was down to her I think and her performance and yeah she was nominated for a Golden Globe for that performance which was wow yeah fantastic I think you touched on this a little bit earlier but the last question that's coming in is and I think because of the scope of this, um, are, is there a potential movie adaptation of this book? Do you, are you, is that something that's going to happen? Maybe, you know, I don't know. Um, it's, I touched on this earlier, which is I wrote it because I didn't have to think about budget. I didn't have to think about anything. And I've just written a show, uh, a new show for um, Hulu, which comes out in May, which is about the FBI. So it's a and it comes out, uh, yeah, it comes out in May, and it's uh, follows a class of FBI agents, and the budget for that was was big, and that's all set in the states, and we had a bit that's in Montana, and we did digital snow, and I now know what digital snow costs, <laughs> and it's really expensive. <laughs> so I'm like, I didn't even have that much snow, so I was like, wow, these things are really pricey. 
Um, so I, it would be it would require an enormous leap of faith from someone. So just looking at it in terms of the world we're in right now, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hard one. Not exactly like you go on location at the Arctic. <laughs> It's going yeah, to be hard yeah. to be on location there, I think. Someone told me everyone, they shoot most of that in, in, in uh, Iceland. Iceland. That's the big location, yeah, for things. So maybe, I mean, um, you know, would I would, I think I, you know, as I get older, I become a little bit nervous about things not working in a way I was, you know, like, you know, I would never have dreamt when Child 44 was optioned and turns a movie at any point of going, well, you know, if the movie doesn't turn out the way I want it, am I going to be upset or am I going to feel impacted in some ways? I was just like, this is so exciting. And I love going to Prague where it was shot and meeting the cast and seeing it filmed. And so my tendency is always to say yes to things, even if mm -hmm. they might not work out. But now I'm slightly feeling like, you know, I would, you know, no one wants to see a bad version of something, you know, it's painful. It's painful. You want to see mm. it, see it. Yeah. Or it doesn't, doesn't have to be made. Either, either make it good or don't make it. Precisely. And I think that a lot of authors that have had bad adaptations done are just so sad. <laughs> The weird thing about it was I didn't write the script for Child 44. And I actually think it, the cast are amazing. I think um, the locations were beautiful. I think they were, it was given a bit of an unfair uh, ride by some of the critics because the accents weren't great. And it's true, the, the, the Russian accents were probably a bad decision, but it's kind of a small, it's like a, you get over it. Like it's not, it's not the end <laughs> of the world. But I remember sitting in the, in the, at the premiere and I hadn't been involved directly at all. And yet I could feel I was as nervous as though I had written it. Like I was like watching the audience's reaction. I wanted everyone to love it. And I really mm. was hungry for everyone to love it. And so you can't dis, you know, disengage yourself. You can't think, well, I wrote the book and I, good luck. Right. And I, you still care as much, even if you have nothing to do with the tools. Right. Because mm. it's really your, even though that's a whole different creation, it's still your creation, so to speak. It's, you know, it's your, your world. It, the, that precipice is of your world that you create. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know what I actually, it's weird. It's, they should, they should exist completely separately. And we all obviously love books and, or love, you know, it, like we can in some way separate them, but for some reason they also feed back as well. It's really hard to really disengage. Yeah. Tom, like I said earlier, it has been such a pleasure having you for this conversation. I adore your writing and just can't wait for everybody to read this. And if they haven't read your others, like Jennifer, read The Farm, go get Child yeah. 44 immediately. You will thank me later. <laughs> so well, thank you again. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for hosting me. And um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Excellent. Thank well, hopefully we'll meet in person one of these days. Next time you're in La Jolla, come by the store again. I will do. I, yeah. And I, I have friends in La Jolla. So. Excellent. We'll hope to see you awesome. there. Jennifer, thank you again, as always. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, All Tom. Right. Thank you. Good Julie. night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival.